Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 111 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live Talk Show and Podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of Thyroid Nation. And I'm Tiffany Milanich of GratefulGarden.biz and MendingMedicine.com. Today we are talking with the fabulous Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, PhD, medical biophysicist, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the award-winning website, The Paleo Mom, about, about paleo principles and thyroid health. So it's going to be a really great show. We have wanted to talk to Sarah for a long time, and we've wanted to meet her, so we're really excited. Tiffany and I cannot wait. I cannot wait, and with no further ado, because it looks like she's already with us. So let's get this Thyroid Nation thriving. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being with us today. We are so excited to have you. <laughs> Dan, oh, are really you still with us? Yeah, I am. Sorry. In. I was Oh, no, no. My my computer is being funny this morning. I'm sorry, guys. It was just being ugly. I already restarted <laughs> and everything. I don't know what's going on. Sorry about that. I'm I'm like, I know how excited she is to talk to you. Where'd she go? <laughs> I'm here, I'm oh here, I'm here. <laughs> so where are you calling in today from? Um, I live in the northern suburbs of Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, my goodness. A terrible hot and humid? Uh, it has been pretty warm this week. Um, August is usually when we start getting this like mix of like a little taste of things are going to get cooler in the fall. So last week we had this like beautiful cool down and some rain and it was lovely. And then all of a sudden this week it's been back to, oh wait, it's still August and technically summer for quite a while yet. So <laughs> right. <Those> remember, <laughs> remember how that yeah. Is? yeah. <laughs> ha ha nice joke we we're just trying to tease right. you right uh we've actually um you know I, you probably don't know but i lived in costa rica for eight years sarah and i uh, we moved back to colorado we moved back to the states we're from texas but we moved to colorado no way were we going to go back to texas after living in Col- i mean after living in costa rica so we landed in colorado springs and today this morning my husband and i i was like wow, this weather is so amazing. It's like, I don't know, 70, or the high is supposed to be 70. It's like 59 or something and sunny. And he goes, I know, shh, I don't want to tell anybody. It's so great. I don't want anybody, I don't want everybody moving <laughs> here. <a> secret. <laughs> um, so as much as it gets hot and humid in the summer in Atlanta, we have the most beautiful, like, fall, spring, these super mild winters. Like, I don't like complaining about the heat because – most mm-hmm. of the year, the weather's pretty darned amazing. Um, I'll complain about the bugs, though. They come <laughs> with the heat. So it's directly related. <laughs> Holy smokes. They're just huge. They're huge. And I suppose Costa Rica probably also had giant bugs. Yeah. We did. We did. Um, <laughs> yeah. And we had these um, bugs. That, they were called noceums. And there were these little bitty black, little annoying, little biting things. Oh, my God. We're so glad to be rid of those. <laughs> <laughs> you couldn't hardly see them no see-ems you know they were yeah. it was funny but right um name. yeah right um okay so well hi sarah i'm dana it's nice to meet you finally <laughs> we are so thrilled to have you <laughs> we are we're so excited um we would just we just want to um hear your story and and start from the very beginning let's start there oh my gosh um 
So I was born on a, no, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> you know, I, I really started struggling with my health around puberty and that's when I started putting on weight. Um, I came from a family where, um, you know, we were, my, my mom was like really crunchy granola. You know, she belonged to the organic foods co-op back when that was not a thing. We grew a lot of our own food because we were really poor. Um, we, you know, we lived by the ocean. We, we would fish and, and harvest shellfish. So we were eating, you know, really amazing food that I did not appreciate at the time. And um, I was also a really active kid. I had a, you know, mile and a half walk to and from the bus stop every day. Um, my hobby was hopping on my bike and going for long bike rides with my brother. And this was, you know, ye olden days when kids would just hop on, you know, bikes and go roam the neighborhood for hours and nobody knew where they were and it was fine. Um, and, you know, being an, an active kid with a, you know, very sort of whole food based, nutritious diet and yet I I started putting on weight and it didn't make sense and I uh, was a really tired kid I would go to bed you know willingly as a teenager at eight in the eight in the evening um, I was having issues with like scalp psoriasis and eczema and really bad acne and um, you know some mild depression and everything that I was going through was dismissed in part because those things were so normal in my family. Um, weight issues were sort of rampant in my family and, um, you know, having uh, difficulty with uh, bowel movement regularity was rampant in my family. Having dry skin was rampant in my family. And, um, and so it became, it was, it was, Oh, well, this is, this is, you know, this, this is just what happens. And when I look back on it, you know, I now recognize that as being the initial manifestation of symptoms of Hashimoto's thyroiditis, but it took me decades to get a diagnosis. And in the meantime, I um, felt like it was my fault. You know, there was this idea that if, um, if I had, uh, ice cream, you know, or a candy bar or something right. once a week, that that was somehow the, the, the blame went there. And um, I was accused of, you know, sneaking food, um, which I was not doing. But I became so defeated by having weight problems that it didn't matter what I did. It didn't matter if I was counting calories. I mean, this was long before I actually really understood anything about nutrition, um, but I ended up developing binge eating disorder and really, really bad um, eating habits because of the depression that went along with being overweight and having no control over it um, because of really just feeling like, you know, if it doesn't matter what I do, if I'm going to be overweight no matter what I do, well, then I might as well eat three pizzas and a gallon of ice cream. Like it, it just really followed one to the other. And so I spent my later teen years and most of my 20s morbidly obese, um, close to 300 pounds at my heaviest. And this whole time, you know, I, I really thought that my problem, right, the, the thing that, you know, I needed to fix was that I was overweight. Like, I really saw that as being 
the, my, my health problem. And I ignored everything else that I was going through. I still normalized it. Like that was still something that was happening in my life. And it wasn't until I had a couple of kids and now, you know, was, was racking up the, the list of chronic <laughs> disease diagnoses. And, you know, not now I had um, not just psoriasis as an autoimmune skin condition, but like in plainness, which is an autoimmune skin condition. I'd been diagnosed with early arthritis. Um, I had, you know, frequent migraines and um, irritable bowel syndrome and acid reflux and asthma and severe allergies. And uh, I was uh, borderline type 2 diabetic and I had high blood pressure, right? I had this like growing list of um, health concerns and it was really hitting this, this low after my second daughter was born where I was having trouble losing the baby weight um, and my skin was a mess and I just, I, I had this moment. I was, I was literally sitting in her bedroom uh, watching, you know, my, you know, toddler play where I went, hang on, maybe health is more complex than just how much I weigh. And maybe the solution to my health, is more detailed than how many calories or carb grams I'm eating. And that, that just thinking about the problem of my health in that way was what really started my entire journey. And it's what started me um, researching dietary interventions. I started with eczema because my eczema was incredibly bad at the time and looking at relationships between eczema and food sensitivities online. That brought me to learning about the paleo diet, um, eventually, I tried the paleo diet, and it was so just miraculous. I was able to go off six prescription medications in two weeks, um, and I lost uh, quite a lot of weight. And I, I just went, oh, oh, okay. Um, food is, is something for my body that is more than just energy. There's something else in this. And it, at the same time, you know, I, I have a PhD in medical biophysics. I was doing medical research. I have a really detailed um, background in biology and inflammation, in epithelial cell biology and cancer biology, um, immune system biology. And I was able to use that background to start really understanding what it was about the paleo diet and that template that was so powerful and therapeutic for me. And it then as my body of knowledge about the, the real intersection between uh, compounds and foods and human health, as I got really detailed in just nerding out about that, um, that's when I was motivated to start my website, to start writing, to start sharing that information with the world, and also to dig deeper and really understand how to take those principles and take those ideas behind paleo, and, and I really mean the contemporary biology ideas. I really mean the, the looking at the detailed um, interactions between compounds and foods um, with our bodies at the molecular and cellular level. Um, to, take, to take that and apply it to autoimmune disease. And it was through that journey that I was finally able to get those answers of, oh, this whole time, it was hypothyroidism that was at the root of everything that I was going through for decades. Um, and that hypothyroidism, my main triggers are, you know, stress and lack of sleep 
and food triggers like gluten and dairy. And this whole time, if I had been able to have this information, I could have saved myself a lot of suffering. I could have saved myself, um, you know, being bullied, uh, maybe. I could have saved myself certainly having such, you know, poor self-esteem and and sense of self-worth. I could have saved myself a lot of physical pain. Um, I may never have developed the eating disorder that I did. Um, But I can't change the past. So instead, what I try to do with that um, is I try to channel that energy into providing educational resources for other people so that hopefully I can help other people get the information that would have made all the difference to my life 20 or 30 years earlier and get them that information as an intervention. So they don't have to hit the lows that I had to hit in order to, to find my way out of that hole. Whew. I know, wow. right? I mean, That's, you just got to sit. Well, you just have to sit there for a minute after that because it's, it's just you covered so much. And um, every time you say something and this, this, I had all these questions and thoughts and comments and things. But so we just had, I just need to sit for a second because that was such a yeah. pretty powerful opening statement, Miss well, <laughs> Valentine. Let me, <laughs> let, me, let me summarize it. Um, and maybe this can direct where we start with questions. Um, Growing up with undiagnosed thyroid disease um, was a set of um, sort of ad- adverse adversarial situation, right? It was it was growing up in adversity. It was growing up with very unique challenges that my peers did not grow up with, and you know, there's really interesting things in adversity research where there are people who Um, some of the most successful people in the world, you can trace back to adversity and rising above adversity. And then there's other people who, you know, it it breaks them. I am fortunate enough to be in the former group that this challenge is something that created who I am. It's something that made me so stubborn and ambitious. And, you know, it made me pursue uh, a PhD in, you know, medical biophysics, as you said, which is all the words in one word. So clearly it's all the PhDs in one PhD. Um, but it made me pursue this despite um, not necessarily having the best situation for being a graduate student and working those long hours and having that long stress. Um, mm. I was so determined to get that level of ed- education, to become a medical researcher, um, and then that determination has become, I am so determined to create these resources to turn the tide of public health. And um, even though growing up with undiagnosed thyroid disease um, created some really horrible events in my life, um, the privilege that I have now of being a thought leader and a health educator and a health advocate comes out of that adversity. And I, I do, I, I feel deeply honored that I, I get to work on finding a solution to this public health crisis. And we're glad we're happy that you are. Um, it's, it's an amazing story. It really is. And, and I have to say that I relate to a lot of it, um, especially your teens and things. I, I didn't have the, uh, you know, obesity, but I did have, 
overweight issues um, that I was able to hide pretty well. I was a cheerleader in things, but comparatively to my friends, mine was definitely different. And I, uh, I had issues of hypothyroidism and hormone issues, like different than just it being that I was, you know, starting menstruation and things like that. And I was going through being a teen and all that. Mine was, mine was accelerated version of, of most teens. And so I relate to a lot of it and it just makes me think, you know, or it kind of makes me, you know, glad and happy that I'm able to, to help where I can and Tiffany as well. And of course you as the paleo mom and all the amazing work you're doing, but for our kids now, you know, I have a couple kids. Tiffany has four. I know you have uh, kids I as have well. Two girls. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I actually, I monitor my kids really closely because of course, um, even though autoimmune disease is not caused by genetics, um, there's a genetic susceptibility. So approximately one third of our risk for autoimmune disease comes from a collection of genes and we pass those down. That's why autoimmune disease tends to run in family. And because uh, certain autoimmune diseases are linked with certain genes, that's why you tend to see sort of certain collections of autoimmune disease. So in my family, we see a lot of thyroid um, disease and celiac disease is what's running through my family. And then a lot of skin conditions, which are probably most secondary autoimmune diseases. Um, So, you know, you get thyroid disease first. And once the body figures out to attack something in it that it's not supposed to, it can figure out how to attack more things. So once you develop one autoimmune disease, the chances of developing a second and a third and a fourth are are much, much higher. Um, So what I do, you know, knowing that my, my daughters very likely have inherited this genetic predisposition from me is I, I mean, first of all, they're entirely gluten-free, but they have overt reactions to gluten. Um, So that's, that's a no brainer. Um, right. So now, what I, do you I mean, Sarah? Do you mind if I if I back you up? Mm. What do you mean by no, go for it. Uh, just for people that are listening? What do you mean by overreactions to gluten? Can you tell me a little bit about uh, so, what you know, so people can know what to look for? They're like, oh my god, yeah. you know what? My kids so, actually. I it's a really interesting thing because I uh, my kids had health issues that um, I didn't realize were linked at all to diet um, or certainly not to gluten until I was solving my own health issues and had had such amazing success going paleo, which, you know, is gluten-free and dairy-free. And I think those, those two things plus nutrient density were really the keys for me personally. And I really decided, you know, first of all, I needed to be in a house that didn't have pizza in it just so that I could be sane. Um, so I needed my family <laughs> to join me to support On me. the journey. Right. Um, but I also, you know, as I was reading so much about why gluten is not cool and why dairy can be so problematic for some people, um, I really felt like I didn't want to be feeding my kids these foods. Like, you know, it felt like now that I understand that these are not good foods, I'm I might as well just give my kids, you know, jelly beans. Like it, it, I put it in the same category. If I'm not going to feed them junk food for dinner, why am I going to feed them pasta? So I ended up going gluten-free and their reactions disappeared. So if my, they were different. My oldest had had chronic constipation um, pretty much since potty training. And um, we had her on Miralax. She'd been on Miralax for over two years by the time we went paleo as a family and uh, she was on a full cap 
So if anyone's familiar with Miralax, a, you know, right. a, a pediatric doses are typically like a half teaspoon to a teaspoon. A full cap, uh, which I believe is three tablespoons, something like that, is an adult dose. And that's right. what it took my tiny underweight five-year-old at that time. That's what it took to keep her regular. Um, right. And so she, um, so she had chronic constipation, but also one of the things that she hadn't been able to communicate to me until after we were gluten-free was she had chronic abdominal pain. Um, so she was a colicky baby. Um, she started having temper tantrums at nine months old. Uh, by the time she was two, she was having daily tantrums that lasted one to two hours. She hit four hours on more than one occasion, but that was her, her wow. record. Um, you know, she was, a, she didn't sleep through the night. Um, you know, she was, uh, she put me through my paces. She, she really, um, she was a, a, a huge, huge challenge. And we went gluten-free and within a month we were able to get her just gluten-free. Like she transitioned to paleo over six months, just gluten-free. We were able to get her off Miralax completely. Um, we weaned her off over about a month. Um, and then she started saying, mom, I don't have tummy aches all the time anymore. She didn't know that it was weird to have a stomach ache every time you ate. She didn't understand that that was abnormal because she'd had that her whole life until we went gluten-free. So she didn't, she didn't know to communicate that to me. The only way she could communicate right. it was by with behavioral problems. And so as soon as we went gluten-free, she started sleeping through the night for the first time in her life. Oh my uh, she gosh. was five years old. And, um, and she, she started eating food. So up, up until that point, she um, really had a really intense food aversions. I mean, she'd been diagnosed with sensory processing disorder, so that was also a contributor here. But um, she really ate bland, monotexture food, and there was probably 10 or 12 foods it, completely that she would eat. So, you know, it was like uh, junky crackers with junky cheese. Um, she would eat bananas, she would eat scrambled eggs, um, you know, it was, it was, uh, she would eat <laughs> granola that had been sitting in milk for at least an hour, so it had to be completely soft, um, oh so gosh. we had, right, and it was, uh, and we just struggled, because she was underweight, she was actually borderline failure to thrive at one year old, and we were, you know, like, when your kid is borderline failure to thrive, and the nurses are saying, you better fatten up this kid, or we have to, you know, make some calls, like, that's, as a parent, that's one of the scariest things. And so we right. took getting calories into her very, very seriously and was whatever she will eat is what we will make. And it was, you know, really a, a very, very small collection of foods with very few um, actual nutritious ingredients. And so at stomach aches go away and all of a sudden we're able to start expanding her palate and expanding the foods that she would eat. And it took a long time. I'm not saying it was easy. We did um, a, you know, it was across the board in terms of strategy. So it's like turn food into a game, uh, reward with uh, strawberries for dessert, uh, yell a little bit. That's not, I don't recommend yelling at your kids to get them to eat for, for other parents, right. but sometimes that's how things just fell apart in my house. And so it took some time, but as she actually started to eat protein, uh, really for the first time, you know, actually eat meat for the first time in her life, her behavioral issues also just melted away. So everything that we associated with sensory processing disorder, she was an, um, a sensory, um, she had sensory aversion. So she didn't like uh, any kind of texture in her clothes. She only wore shoes that were two sizes too big. 
She was scared of bright lights. She was scared of loud noises. Um, you know, so these are, these were challenges that meant I didn't even put her in preschool. Um, by the time, you know, it was about seven or eight months between when we started going paleo in my house and she started kindergarten. By the time she started kindergarten, she was like a completely normal kid. She didn't have any behavioral issues. All of the symptoms of sensory processing disorder were gone. Now, that is considered a, a developmental delay, and it's totally possible she would have grown out of that in that time frame, independent of the things that we were changing in, in terms of diet. I'm not going to say that paleo cured her SPD, but, you know, over that time, she, she started putting on muscle. She started having the energy to run around. Um, transitions just became so much easier for her. And then by the time she was at school, she was this, you know, amazing, like, overachiever. Um, you know, I guess that I shouldn't have been surprised about. Um, but I, I never had to tell her teacher, oh, um, you know, she has these sensory issues. I never had to tell her teacher. The teacher never had to have any tricks to get her to transition from one activity to another. But when she was preschool age, that was my entire life with countdowns and, um, you know, talking through, you know, preparation for what's going to happen in the day and structure and routine. And we were able to let that completely slide. So that was a pretty major thing to have change in my life as a parent. Um, The biggest thing was really that I was getting sleep for the first time in five years. Um, And so that was, and that was like, that was my kid who had the not as big reaction to gluten. Um, And sure enough, I mean, if she ever gets exposed to gluten by accident, she has debilitating stomach aches. Um, So we, we keep her completely gluten free. My that you know, she was uh, two years old at the time, my youngest daughter, uh, we had spent um, over a year in specialist office was trying to understand why she had obstructive sleep apnea. Um, so she would stop breathing at night um, and her oxygen would desaturate. And we had done three sleep studies. She had had um, three laryngoscopies where they put um, a camera on a tube up your nose and down your throat to look at your vocal cords, um, including one by the pediatric pharyngeal anatomy expert of the USA who happens to be here in Atlanta. Um, she'd had two barium swallow studies at the children's hospital. She'd had an upper GI series looking for a um, hiatal hernia. Um, and basically all we could tell is, you know, the normal culprit in that age for obstructive sleep apnea is tonsils and adenoids and hers were completely normal. So we found out that she had um, what's called a laryngomalacia, which is a slight curl on the epiglottis. The vocal cord bands are just a tiny bit too tight. Um, and kids who have this, was there you know, any, as they, was there any, was there any, could you notice anything um, about that when she's, you know, was there any other symptom that you could tell uh, that she had that or no? Other, other than, um, you know, she would stop breathing and then she would wake up screaming. Um, wow. Other than that, I mean, I could, we co-slept actually, um, during this time. And so I could hear her stop breathing at night. It would wake me up. Um, Mm. And so um, other than that, no, there were no other, there were no other symptoms. And so we discovered there's this slight anatomical anomaly in her throat, but that she also had uh, extreme inflammation in her vocal cords from acid reflux. And so what was happening was the acid reflux was swelling up everything in her larynx so that when she was asleep and specifically when she was in REM sleep and specifically in certain sleeping positions, it would allow her 
um, her epiglottis to flop over her trachea and block her trachea. And that, that was the source of the obstructive sleep apnea. And I, we had a, just an amazing uh, pediatric pulmonologist in Atlanta who helped us figure that out. Um, wow. And so we saw, uh, wow. because, of, because acid reflux was part of this equation, we saw a pediatric gastroenterologist who uh, was not my favorite doctor. Um, and, um, <laughs> just, and he just wanted to load her up with acid reflux medicine, right. um, which we tried. And it didn't. It didn't, didn't do anything. I mean, I was tracking. I had pages and pages. I was journaling how many times and what time of night, how long it lasted of, of her uh, breathing episodes every single night. And I could, I could graph them and show that there was no issue. That's scientist mom right there. Um, but so I asked him one day, uh, and this was as I, I had started to, was starting to consider some dietary changes for myself, but before I was paleo, I said, do you think – there could be some kind of food allergy or food sensitivity. I mean, if you think about, you know, anaphylaxis and how that can stop people from breathing, um, you know, could, could food be part of this equation? And he shot me down um, and said, um, uh, he went on this rant about his crazy patients or parents who put their kids on gluten-free, casein-free diets and, then swear that it cured their kids, but you can't do a test like that because you don't know that kid wouldn't have been cured anyways, and this is just a load of Huey. And on hindsight, I think it's remarkable that a doctor who studies the organs in which the food we eat is that organ's immediate environment, that organ is bathed in the food that we eat constantly, could think that what we eat has nothing to do with the health of that organ. Because sure enough, um, now with her, it was um, gluten and dairy. Um, and actually, she has a stronger reaction to dairy than she has to gluten. But that was what was causing the acid reflux. And as soon as we cut gluten and dairy out of her diet, her obstructive sleep apnea went away completely, and the swelling in her larynx was no longer visible in, in any way. And wow. if she gets exposed to gluten or dairy... She has such an extreme acid reflux reaction that you can, she's like choking on acid. It will be so bad that she'll throw up. Um, but I've, you know, the last time it happened, I sat in her bed all night while she slept, you know, against my shoulder to keep her upright. And I was just listening to her gurgle on stomach acid all night. Oh. And I'm like, this is an experiment because I took it out. I took out gluten and dairy and the symptoms went away. I reintroduced it the symptoms came back. And this is actually how allergists, right, this is the gold standard for um, establishing uh, food sensitivities and food allergies is the elimination and challenge, right? That is the gold standard. It is more sensitive than any other kind of test. Cut the food out. Do the symptoms go away? Add the food back in. Do the symptoms come back? And not that I intentionally added the food back in with her, that was, it was always an accident, but I, could al I always knew when it had happened and knew to, to be watching out for these symptoms. And so because my girls have these um, health you know, issues that are, are non-existent when we stay gluten and dairy-free in our household and come back with a vengeance if they accidentally get exposed to those, um, that has helped that's like how much more motivation do you need to stay gluten-free and dairy-free? I also have really strong reactions now when I eat those foods. 
um, which I didn't know because I was reacting to them all the time before. So I just felt crummy and I didn't, I wasn't able to identify that until I went paleo and really was able to, you know, detoxify my body from, from those foods and, and, and calm my immune system and stop reacting um, and start feeling better. And then all of a sudden, oh, well, now that I feel good all the time, when I feel really crummy, it's really obvious. Um, so that is one major thing that I'm hoping, you know, it's, again, environment, diet, lifestyle is two-thirds of risk factor for autoimmune disease. And I'm hoping that having this really nutrient-dense diet in my home without these really common trigger foods in our, in our house and in our diets is going to stop my girls from ever developing autoimmune disease. But I do, to get back to where we started this whole conversation, I do watch them really carefully. You know, I'm, I'm watching for symptoms. Um, when we do blood work during a, you know, yearly physical or something, there's certain ages where um, they like to test for things like vitamin D. My pediatrician will add a thyroid panel on my request, and we just, let's just have a look. Let's just make sure everything's okay. So I've, I'm watching that more carefully just because I, um, I know how it impacted my life, and I want to protect my children from that experience. Did you say that one of your daughters was um, more sensitive to dairy than gluten? Yeah, my youngest. So okay, right. the um, exaggerated acid reflux reaction. Um, okay. She she it's it dairy is the is the stronger trigger. She gets it from gluten as well, but it's not as bad. Okay. You know, it's interesting. You talk about um, the vocal cords and the acid reflux and everything. Have you heard um, about the autoimmune? Uh, for Hashimoto's being diagnosed via uh, voice recognition way before uh, it would show up anywhere else? No, that's really interesting. Yeah, so I can't pronounce her last name, but she's she is incredibly intelligent. Um, from Anna. Bulgaria. Anna. Gay. Jeva. <laughs> Anyways, um, yeah. It's from really, Hashimoto I'll send Health. it to you. I'll send yeah, it to you. Yeah, it's amazing. When you were talking about that, I was thinking to myself, "Wow, like it came up," and I'm like, "I gotta, I gotta mention this." It, it's really very interesting because I know I have a lot of significant uh, changes in my vocal cords, and I have since I was a kid, like very little, where my voice would like crack, and it's just very interesting. <laughs> and being Same a with scientist, my son. I know you would love it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, son. Um, Tiffany just kind of. T- uh, chatted that to me right before uh, she mentioned it, and I'm looking at this study right now from Hashimoto's, uh, it's dot, or just Hashimoto.help, and my son has that um, crackling. Of course, he's got all these other health issues and things, and he, he has that, the voice that's kind of funny, so that's very interesting to... Yeah, and she's actually looking, for anyone listening, um, you can friend her, uh, but she's looking for English native English speakers to actually do this test. So... Uh, I'll send it to you. Yeah, please do. Yeah. That's fascinating. It's very now, cool. Is it, we, is it autoimmune disease in general, or is it Hashimoto's I believe thyroid? I, I believe it's specific to Hashimoto's, because, of course, you know, that affects the vocal cords well, quite the, a bit. And, and but the inflammation in the de- thyroid is right there. Exactly. Yeah. So to be able to detect that so much earlier, I mean, there's so many of us, I'm, and I have to tell you, I'm just stuck in this resonation from you talking about your story uh, but there's so many of us that look backwards and go, you know, they say it's 10 years. I can almost guarantee it's long before that. I, I can almost guarantee you that it can be around 
long, long before 10 years, um, before the thyroid actually falls in the treatable range, because I have so many things from childhood that, you know, fit right into that Hashimoto yep. definition. And, and so many people that we talk to also say that, you know, they look back and they're like, how long has this actually been a part well, of this, you know? I am very confident that Hashimoto's manifested with me with puberty. In fact, it might have, I went through puberty very early and early puberty can be caused by Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And I actually wonder if um, I had uh, Epstein-Barr mononucleosis and was sick for six months when I was in second grade. And sometimes I go, maybe that was it. Like maybe that seven years old, maybe because Epstein-Barr is also... Um, an infectious trigger for autoimmune disease, and it is more uh, closely linked with uh, thyroid disease um, and some other some other autoimmune diseases. But um, but that you know the the genetic right HLA DQ2 plus Epstein Barr right. We know that there's some interesting uh, combinations between infectious trigger and and certain uh, gene variants, specifically of the HLA gene. We know that those can be linked with specific autoimmune diseases, and I don't remember them all off the top of my head, but I, I do know that I've got this, like, oh, this Hashimoto's combination. And, of course, nobody knew about that in the 80s. That wasn't a thing. <laughs> I can't blame my doctor for not knowing, you know, to, to right. be looking right, for right, that. Right, right, right. I mean, but, it was way before its time, yeah. Right. Well, and um, I was, you know, yeah. why, it's, why it's a late puberty, um, my son, uh, he's late puberty. So, but I'm thinking that he's um, – that that might even have something to do with it because it's really a late kind of onset puberty. So I don't know. I mean, so early and early and late maybe. <laughs> yeah. No. And then it's interesting because thyroid disease does do both. It it seems to because it can affect our hormones in in different ways. It seems to be linked with both. And what's also really interesting about thyroid disease specifically is that it tends to um, manifest during hormone changes. So for women, that's puberty. Right. Pregnancy, pregnancy. Uh, birth, weaning, menopause. And we see these sort of peaks of uh, incidence rates during these hormone shifts. And it, it may be that the disease precedes that and there's something about the hormone shift that increases disease activity. Um, but, you know, when you think about – it kind of makes sense when you think about how much crosstalk there is between thyroid hormones and sex hormones. Like all of a sudden you go, well, you know, of course there's going to be – some kind of relationship there. Um, but I, I look back at that and I go, puberty was, that was the beginning. Well, listen, Dana wow. and I are just going to, we're just going to come see you in Atlanta. We're going to, we're going to come and spend the weekend with you because I, it, I could talk to you forever. I can, I can hear it. You know how you just have that resonance with certain people but I, I specifically, for one, because I am not gluten-free, so you can, you know, uh, have at me on you that You can beat one. her up. You <laughs> can beat me up. Cop- I'll send you a copy of my book, and that will be <laughs> – just read, read those, and then that, that'll be enough. That'll be enough. Well, and it, it's funny because it really is uh, – it's in my face right now. I mean, we've been doing this a long time, and – going back and forth on the research and this and that. So I was so excited to talk to you, not, not to get off topic, but I know a lot of the listeners are here because we have literally the paleo mom with us. So we need to, we need to hear you. Convince me. Tell me. You know, my antibodies have not budged at all. Of course, I had 
a very uh, almost 500 on my titers with Epstein-Barr. I was exposed at 11 years old with my sister with mono. I mean, this has been a huge portion of my life. So I, I'm, I'm like, I want to talk to her yeah. about that. And I'm like, no, no, no. We have some, I'm we here. Have some similarity and experiences, that's for sure. Absolutely. Like I, and even the weight thing, I literally gained, I went from underweight to overweight in, in a year. I gained 60 pounds in a year. That should have been my huge red flag. And I thought, well, maybe I'm just stressed. You know, I had taken a fairly stressful job. And so, oh, yeah, girl, I'm coming to Atlanta. We're just going to, we're just going to have a, a powwow. Okay. <laughs> but I, just I want really, to really want you. Too. You want What's the up? notes why people with autoimmune disease should not eat gluten. Okay, let's do it. I do. Uh, I need you to convince yeah. me. I, I, I admire you. I think you are off the charts intelligent. I need you to convince me. Be like, Tiff, this is why you got to do it. Tell me. Well, so, and, we've, and we've had and we've had tons of experts and doctors and amazing tons of your friends and things on the show. And still, here's Tiffany asking for help. So, so spill it. <laughs> okay. So um, let's let's actually I, I want to go beyond gluten because there's multiple compounds in wheat that are known to feed the wrong kinds of bacteria in our digestive tract and cause gut dysbiosis. So we know that um, the uh, bacteria in our guts interact with our immune systems and actually modulate our immune system. So if you have great probiotic bacteria, they help regulate the immune system. And when you have undesirable strains of bacteria, they help stimulate the immune system. So you can cause a generalized inflammation in the human body just by having the wrong kinds of bacteria in the digestive tract. So there's compounds in wheat that feed the wrong kinds of bacteria. There's compounds okay. in wheat that directly cause a leaky gut. Um, and there's some mechanisms of causing a leaky gut that require a genetic predisposition. It just so happens to be the same genetic predisposition that uh, we almost certainly have with Hashimoto's thyroiditis. Um, and there's some ways that, that compounds in wheat can uh, irritate the gut barrier and cause a leaky gut that's completely independent of genetics that happens in everybody. But if you're somebody with autoimmune disease, you are more susceptible, you're going to have a more exaggerated reaction, and you're going to take longer to heal, which means that if you're eating wheat on a daily basis, you never have the opportunity to heal. To heal. Um, and there's it, compounds in, in uh, wheat that are profoundly inflammatory uh, just by themselves. Um, and it just goes beyond gluten, although gluten is inflammatory. So they stimulate the immune system. Um, and for example, wheat germ agglutinin, uh, which is a sort of similar class of protein to gluten, but is a, a different protein in, in wheat, has been investigated for use as an adjuvant for vaccines, which means the compounds you put in vaccines to ramp up the immune response uh, to create more antibodies so that you can put a dead virus in that vaccine and you will develop immunity to it. Um, it has also been investigated as a drug delivery molecule because it is so good at getting across the gut barrier intact where it then interacts with the immune system. So it's been uh, hypothesized that if you bound that to a drug that, um, you know, this is one of the big challenges in, in drug research is, you know, you can get a drug that's biologically active, but it's not absorbed in the gut. Well, if you bind that to wheat germ agglutinin, you can get that across the gut 
um, and cow. then your drug can be active. That makes wheat germaglutinin a biologically active protein. It is incredibly stable uh, in heat, so uh, it doesn't matter how you prepare food. Uh, wheat germaglutinin, right. by the way, is in uh, even like the, the grass, like wheat grass is, depending on how old it is, is gluten-free, but it has, still has wheat germaglutinin, which is it's just ridiculously inflammatory protein. Um, it is incredibly good at getting inside the human body, and it is uh, incredibly good at ramping up uh, the immune response. There is um, what are called trypsin amylase inhibitors in wheat. So these are um, they're designed to protect the seed from digestion. So what they do is they inhibit our digestive enzymes. And there's now a collection of papers that demonstrate that those compounds directly cause intestinal inflammation and may be the cause of non-gluten, um, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So it may be that these, uh, you know, digestive enzyme inhibitors, uh, they cause so much inflammation in the digestive tract that they might be entirely just by themselves responsible for gluten sensitivity. It's actually not gluten, it's these other things. Um, and then gluten, <laughs> gluten, um, what's really fascinating about it, it's not compatible with our digestive enzymes. Um, so again, it's a protein that is uh, very resistant to heat and processing, so it's in, it, it doesn't unravel when you heat it the way other proteins do. That's called denaturing. So when we consume it, it's still very intact, and it's not compatible with our digestive enzymes. So we can predict exactly the locations in that protein where our body is going to break that protein apart, and it creates these fragments of proteins that are very predictable, and they've been intensely studied uh, mostly in the context of celiac disease, but what's really interesting is the studies that are using, um, you know, just cell culture studies. So just looking at gut cells, right? Like how do these interact with gut cells? This is now, you know, you're not looking at celiac disease cell lines. You're looking at general just, you know, gut epithelial cell lines. Right. Um, so we start to take away this genetic predisposition. But one of the things we know is, uh, you know, the, one of the main mechanisms behind celiac disease is gluten causes, um, it binds with a receptor in our gut epithelial cells and causes them to release a protein called zonulin. Uh, zonulin opens up um, the junctions between cells. They're called tight junctions. What it does is it opens up the space between cells, which allows more things from inside the gut to leak into the body. Now, a, zonulin has a normal role in digestion, so by being able to open up tight junctions can allow some bigger molecules into the body, which can be beneficial, what happens right. in celiac disease is this is way exaggerated. So you get way too much zonulin, so you open up way too many tight junctions, so you let way too much stuff in. And you've got to think about, right, this, the, what's inside the gut, right, that's eventually what becomes poop. So just right. think about that that's waste stuff. You know, we have these really important controlled mechanisms for, for absorbing nutrients. Um, everything else is not supposed to get absorbed into the body. So what happens when you open up the tight junctions between cells as you absorb this other stuff, it hits the immune system. 80% of our immune system is in the tissues surrounding the gut and stimulates the immune system. So what we know now is that this zonulin response appears to happen in everyone with either the HLA-DQ2 or the HLA-DQ8 um, variants of the human leukocyte antigen gene. Um, those are, you know, 97% of celiacs have one of those two genes, but about 50% of Hashimoto's thyroiditis has HLA-DQ2. So wow. it's associated with both. Um, so if you have one of those variants, 
Um, and we don't know, like no one's looked to see what the zonulin response is with other gene variants. Um, but we know that that's probably one of the things that's going on. But gluten, that's, that's the, like the genetic predisposition side. Gluten is also, you know, these, um, and specifically these fragments, right, these partially digested fragments of gluten, we know that there's at least two other mechanisms through which they can cross the gut barrier intact, um, which means they're um, getting into the body. Uh, some of these mechanisms will damage the cells, and some is like a pr protect, what's called a protected transport. So some will, the cell will actually, it gets to tricks the cell into bringing it in as though it was a nutrient, um, and then it's not. And so then we've got this foreign protein, this, this gluten fragment inside the body where the immune system is, and it just so happens that some of these fragments look a lot like thyroid proteins. And so what happens is you have this foreign protein, right, is this wheat protein is not, it's not foreign or it's not natural for our body inside our body. Cause it's just, it's awfully good at getting it, getting across when it shouldn't be able to. Um, our immune system sees that and goes, Hey, you're not cool. Um, I'm going to have an immune reaction to you. I'm, I'm going to, you're stimulating the immune system. I've, I'm recognizing you as a food antigen. I'm recognizing you as something foreign that shouldn't be in the body. And when there's a little bit and you don't necessarily have the genetic predisposition and autoimmune disease for an immune system that's going to overreact, the immune system can mop up whatever wheat protein gets in the body and it doesn't create this like crazy reaction. But when you have this genetic predisposition and or when you have a large amount of um, gliadin, this, this protein compound, um, protein fragments of, of gluten get into the body, that can ramp up uh, the immune response in a really specific way. So it's forming antibodies against these protein fragments, and it just so happens there's a very, very high likelihood that those antibodies will also attach to proteins in our thyroid. So gluten can be the source of autoantibodies. Uh, it's not just linked to thyroid disease. I mean, that's what's happening in celiac disease, but it's also linked right. with multiple sclerosis, with rheumatoid arthritis, right? There's other... Um, other tissues in the body where these antibodies, when they're formed against gluten, can cross-react with other tissues in the body. But there's specifically research linking um, uh, gluten and actually dairy proteins, casein, antibodies against those foods, linking the, there are high probability that those antibodies will also attack proteins in the thyroid gland. So when you take that entire collection of information about these different proteins of wheat we see, they're not great for gut health. Um, you know, wheat germagglutin and gluten all preferentially feed gram-negative bacteria in the gut. So that's a bacteria like E. coli. So a healthy gut is something like 75% gram-positive bacteria. When you're eating a lot of wheat, it completely flips. So you'll have 75% gram-negative bacteria. Um, and those, those tend to be the ones, that, you know, some of them, and in smaller amounts, is, is normal. Um, but when, it, when they overwhelm, the um, gut microbial community, when they are the dominant species, that's when you don't get the great immune modulation that we want. Um, so they, they feed the wrong kind of bacteria, they irritate the gut lining, they can cause a leaky gut, they stimulate the immune system, they can be the source of autoantibodies. I mean, I think that is so many checks in the cons <laughs> category. And meanwhile, it, are there any checks in the pros category? 
um, wheat is not a nutritious food. It does not have, um, you know, it really doesn't have compelling amounts of any nutrient. It has some selenium, but of course you can get selenium in ample um, quantities from animal foods. It has some manganese. Manganese isn't that hard to get. It has some fiber, but you get just as much fiber from fruits and vegetables. Meanwhile, you're getting 10 to 100 times typically of any essential vitamin and mineral plus, you know, thousands of times more phytochemicals. If you're swapping out a gluten-containing food, a wheat-based food for a fruit or vegetable, like you win across the board. Every single way that you could measure the value of that food, you are getting more and better from a food or, or a piece of fruit or a vegetable serving than you're getting from a dinner roll or pasta. Meanwhile, you know, all of these problematic compounds are non-existent in vegetables and fruit. So there's, by any metric that you look at wheat, right. other than, you know, agriculture allowed us to form settlements 10,000 years ago, which spurred technological advances, which, you know, over 10,000 years led to the iPhone. So, you know, that's good. <laughs> I like my iPhone. Well, but like other than, other than and that it, this like agriculture and, and human civilization, nowadays, there's no good reason for it. And it really well, wasn't a, a predominant part of our diet. I mean, if you look at, you know, what it takes to harvest wheat and grow wheat, and it just was not part of our diet. Yeah, so the earliest uh, research showing uh, some kind of grain consumption, wheat consumption, uh, the earliest grains were actually more oats. Um, sort of 45,000 years ago, it's earlier than a lot of people think, and there's even a little bit of uh, potentially some grain consumption even farther back, like 100, 105,000 years ago. But they were, con- they were foods that were, because they required so much processing, right? They were labor-intensive right. to harvest. Right. Um, they had to be ground and cooked. Um, it was considered a, uh, you know, scarcity food. So when there's no animals to hunt because it's the dead of the winter, um, if there's, there's not enough plant material. And so it was, it was a part of the human diet, I think a lot earlier than we thought even 10 years ago, now that there's new information, but it was not a substantial part of the human diet. I mean, even when you look at the beginnings of agriculture, which go back different parts of the world up to about 12,000 years ago, you know, in Europe, it was only about 6,000 years ago. When you look at um, agriculture, you know, the idea of saving seeds, the idea of storing food for the winter, um, you know, planting, um, planting seeds for the next crop, animal husbandry, all of these things came together. Um, it was still such a labor-intensive food that you know, we had so much more variety in our diet than we have now, right? We were eating so many different, you know, vegetables and wild edibles and uh, meat. And by the way, when we ate meat, nothing went to waste. We ate every single part of the animal. And organ meat can have, you know, 10 to 50 times more vitamins and minerals in it than muscle meat. Like, and these things were, were part of our diet until extremely recently. My, my grandparents, you know, steak and kidney pot pie was like a, a normal, like once a week meal. Like it was liver and onions on Sundays. Like those were just normal foods just two generations ago. And now we get so grossed out over organ meat. Um, so I think you've got this amazing intersection between these inflammatory foods having a bigger proportion, right, making up a larger amount of the food that we eat than ever before in human history. Meanwhile, our diets are stripped of nutrients, and the immune system is a huge nutrient hog. Um, It needs 
this huge collection of nutrients in order to function normally. And so when you're nutrient deficient, we can look at a huge, you know, hundreds and hundreds of studies that link various nutrient deficiencies with various autoimmune diseases. Um, and you combine, we're eating more of this inflammatory stuff that's not good for us at the same time as we're nutrient deficient, at the same time as we're sedentary and we're not getting enough sleep and we're stressed and we're spending more time indoors than we ever have before, and we're more isolated than we ever have before, despite the rest what Facebook would, like, would yeah. make us think, we have just created this, this perfect storm uh, situation for autoimmune disease. Okay, All right, Sarah, so, I get that. Yeah, I get it all. <laughs> Go ahead, Jen. Okay, and I'm, I'm totally on board, and I, I'm following the history, and I'm following all the science. What do you say to the naysayers? like my husband who's in the other room, I won't say it too loud, um, <laughs> who, who say, okay, well, what about all the people that are eating pastries? What about the French people? Are they all sick? Do they all not know it? You know, they're, they're heavily, you know, uh, reliant on, you know, the, that kind of food. So uh, what do you say about those people? So I, I think there's a, few different, there's a few different places to go in terms of, of answering this. The one is, um, the, the wheat that we grow in America is quite different than the wheat that's grown in Europe. And it does okay. actually have, it, it doesn't have more gluten. So that's sort of a misnomer that it has more gluten. It doesn't actually have more gluten, but the fragments of the partially digested gluten that are known to be particularly problematic, these are called alpha gliadin peptides. It has more of those. So, um, so the exact protein makeup of the gluten is slightly different so that it actually it has more capacity to trigger uh, celiac disease, which also implies it has more ability to trigger leaky gut in other people with that genetic, you know, HLA-DQ2 and HLA-DQ8 susceptibility. So that's, that's one thing um, that the wheat that they're eating is quite different. The overall quality of their diet is quite different. Uh, so if you look at what the French eat, they do eat a lot more vegetables than we do on average in America. They do eat, uh, they tend to eat a lot more snout to tail type. So they, organ meat is still uh, a more frequent occurrence uh, in their meals. Um, they, they have some uh, lifestyle differences that are fairly common. So they're not quite as sleep deprived as we are. They're not quite as stressed as we are. They're a little bit more active right. than we are. They use things mm-hmm. like higher quality olive oil. So there's, the fats that they consume tend to be healthier fats. So there's some other aspects to the diet that can compensate for. Well, and their portion uh, sizes are smaller, and they actually take they, their time to digest food. <laughs> and and we, we know that there are certain things that are problematic in the context of a hypercaloric diet but maybe not a problem in the context of an isocaloric diet. So if you're eating too many calories, uh, you know, something like uh, high levels of fructose can be very inflammatory. If you're eating a normal number of calories, fructose does not seem to be as problematic. So there's, there's certain things there. And then the other thing is, you know, there is genetic adaptation. So, um, you know, some people within the, the paleo community who haven't actually read the science will say, oh, you know, well, 10,000 years is a a drop in the pan in terms of human evolution, and it's not enough time for us to have adapted to these new foods in in the food supply. And certainly, you know, the the changes in our food over the last 50 years has been huge, and I think that's where nutrient nutrient deficiency is this, like, extra confounding factor that's really turning the crank. 
But um, the truth is that we've got studies that have looked at um, the, the genetic adaptation to agriculture, and we can see about a dozen points in the human genome where there has been substantial changes uh, in those genes. So those genes have mutated and changed directly related to agriculture and the, the change in diet that agriculture brought. Now, here's the thing. We know, we know what some of those genes do. So, for example, the, the, the best-known example is lactase persistence. So prior to agriculture, um, uh, you know, if you look at hunter-gatherers, um, typically uh, children are weaned between the ages of three and five. And if you look at hunter-gatherers, if you look at prehistoric man, there was no cow's milk. So what happened is after about the age of five, our bodies stopped making the enzyme uh, lactase, which is required for digesting lactose. So infants make lactase. Lactose is part of, of human breast milk. And um, once you don't need that anymore, we're like, why waste your resources making something you don't need? Now, yeah. one of the things that's happened with um, this, this change in agriculture uh, or this introduction to agriculture and this now milk is a, is a food that we can consume our entire lives is now a substantial proportion of us, depending on our cultural heritage, continue to make lactase after weaning age. It's called lactase persistence. And it's like 90% of, of people from European de descent, right? It's like 5% in, in um, you know, people of Asian descent, right? So it sort of depends on where in the world you are and how big of basically how important dairy was in the last few thousand years in terms of, of um, diet. But that's one of these points of um, sort of adaptation pressure to the genome to adapt to changes. Now, there's some other ones that are seem to be involved with um, fatty acid metabolism. That might be, you know, some of the consequences of that might be the increased um, uh, chances of cardiovascular disease in certain types of situations. Um, but we don't actually know what all of these genes do. So we can tell there's like 12 points in the genome. We don't know what the relevance of all 12 points are. Um, but I think that when you look at that information, it would be absolutely myopic to say, well, nobody's adapted to grains as a food. Um, mm -hmm. I, think, I think you can't say that. And I think that mm -hmm. what you can say is there's, there's a, a great amount of variability between humans. Um, but if you look at the research in autoimmune disease, the, the, you know, one in five or one in six of us with autoimmune disease, we are not the people who have this um, genetic adaptation to be able to handle grains. Right. <laughs> and, and you still, I mean, even if you're adapted to be able to not get sick when you consume wheat, that's different than saying that wheat is a good food. So when you go back to the initial point of, you know, why, why are the French so healthy when they eat baguettes, um, you know, the overall quality of, their, of the diet, their overall lifestyle choices are vastly superior on average to ours. So that's where nutrient deficiency, stress, sleep, activity, that's where those inputs all become extremely relevant. Okay. Well, I like that answer. Wow. I know. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Is there is there anybody who should eat wheat? Can no. No. Can can yes. 
can, yes. Um, should, no. So uh, wheat, wheat is just, it doesn't have valuable nutrition. It should not be okay. displacing more nutrient-dense options. Okay. So for those with to the, get it out there. So for those with the daunting task, busy schedule, uh, kids, dance, I mean, just major practices and all of these different things, mm-hmm. what on earth am I going to eat? What do you say to them? I mean, you know, I look at the paleo and I hear it and the gluten-free and I, I, I get it, right? I get it in the back of my head. But, you know, having sulfur sensitivities and kidney issues and every time I've tried to go paleo, I'm lacking energy. Obviously, I'm not doing it right. What do you say to those? What am I going to eat, Sarah? What am I going to eat? So I, <laughs> you know, I generally, okay, so let's, 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 let's do a brief, like, what are the foods? You know, this is basically a diet that is mostly vegetables, some, you know, meat and seafood at every meal, but that's, it's not a meat-only diet, right? So I, I aim for about three-quarters of my plate to be vegetables at every meal. Meat, uh, vegetables, fruit, seafood, nuts and seeds, eggs, uh, herbs and spices, healthy fats, right? Like the, this, is, this is generally, and you can cook things in multiple ways. Like once you start talking about, I get to cook in any way. I get to grill my barbecue. I get to do all of these things, and I have all of my spices that I love. Um, food gets to taste delicious. So it's a very whole foods diet. Um, you know, when people say, I eat clean, that's pretty much the same thing. Um, right. It's a little bit more protein than what the plant-based diet is, but it has a lot in common with that. Um, and so what I encourage people to do is, like, let's, let's just talk about the foods that you like. So do you like scrambled eggs? And some fruit. Great. Yeah, That's paleo. Absolutely. Eat that more. I eat, eat that more often. Eat it more. Like uh, roast chicken, um, maybe some some baked potato and some broccoli. You know, some steamed vegetables. Great. That's paleo. What are the meals that you already eat that you can either swap out an ingredient? So if you're cooking with soy sauce, for example, soy sauce. Most of the junky soy sauce we have in, in North America. Um, has um, wheat in it and, and it has gluten in it. Right. So can you right. swap that out for coconut aminos, which tastes very, very similar and, and are a gluten-free option? Uh, you know, can you swap out one ingredient, right? Instead of dredging that thing in flour, can you dredge it in arrowroot powder, right? It, it'll cook almost identically, typically. Um, what are the meals that you already love? And, you know, and I, you know, those meats, those meals that are like a meat and some vegetables, um, some of us, those are our favorite meals of the week. We look forward to them. Um, those, are, those are the ones that are they're already paleo. So let those take over. So instead of having pasta night or, or pizza night, let, let these, these meals that are, that are meat and vegetables take over. And you can still do that in a, I run into the grocery store and I grab uh, a couple of, you know, vegetable sides and a rotisserie chicken and a, a bag of salad, right? Like you can still do that in a way that is super convenient and can fit into a super busy lifestyle. Um, so that's how I encourage people to look at it to start. And then know that there's a learning curve. So paleo is not hard. Um, it is not a, it's, it's not a difficult diet. You don't have to spend all day in the kitchen. It doesn't have to cost more. Um, so you, you, can, you can eat this way on a budget. You can eat it without huge time commitments. Um, it does require some planning. So it does require thinking ahead and, and knowing how you're going to handle 
soccer practice went an hour late and now it's 8.30 and the kids need to go to bed, but everyone's starving. What am I going to do? So right. it requires some, some problem solving in that respect. But what it does have is a learning curve. So instead of it being hard, think of it as I am learning this new way of eating, which means I am trying to find my new recipes, my new what do I make on Sunday that's going to give me leftovers all the way to Wednesday. Uh, what am I going to make in the morning when I'm racing? I slept in accidentally and I'm racing out, out the door. Um, what am I going to pack for my lunches? You know, what are my, what are my go-to comfort foods? What are my snacks? How do I, rem- how do I make desserts? Because you can have dessert on paleo. That is still a thing. It's just made with different ingredients. Um, and, and it still gets to be delicious. So it's, it's, you know, getting through an adjustment period of not necessarily, some of it's retraining your palate, right? Depending on how you're eating, if you're eating a lot of junk food, whole foods are going to taste bland because they're not designed to be addictive the way, you know, processed, refined, right, you know, right, crazy right, right. fast food and stuff is. So there's a bit of a palate adjustment for some people, but mostly it's just a relearning, right? The same way we did when we were early, you know, young adults and we first moved out of the house and we first started really cooking for ourselves and we had to learn how to do all of that. There's that little bit that we have to relearn. We have to reteach ourselves. And depending on your comfort in the kitchen and what your individual challenges are, some people jump right into it. Some people take months to figure out really how this has to, you know, how this is going to fit into our lives. But it, it really does. And it really is um, like an absolutely completely doable thing. So what it takes is commitment and dedication to get through that adjustment right. period, to get through that learning curve, to get to the point where this is just how I eat now because I know this is the best way to eat to support my health for the rest of my life. And, and that's, that's the place where, I mean, that's why the paleo movement has grown to the immense size that right. it is now is because that's, that's the way we approach it. And once we get through that, that learning curve and that adjustment period, that, that is where we end up. And it's a great place. Then you're on a place where we have energy, we feel great, and we've got all the practical aspects dialed in. Well, I'm flipping through your recipes here, and I'm looking at your paleo porridge, and I am, girl, that it looks so good. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> oh, it. my gosh. And, and that looks is, so awesome. Why I, I mean, I transitioned to my family over six months. So when I was first transitioning them, I was making paleo bread for sandwiches and paleo muffins for, to have well, with thank breakfast. thank for pointing and, that out, right? You, yeah. you, of all people, with, with you know, health, major, major health issues, you know, I know you said you didn't know that those were what was the cause of your children's issues and things like that, but you took six months, right? There's, there, mm-hmm. we have some, we have some room, right? It's a transition period. It's not like you a one day to the next. I got to stop now. Allowed right. to do it. No, you're absolutely allowed to do this in baby steps. So for me, I'm a cold turkey kind of person. So I started August 31st, 2011, like just coming up wow. to my six year anniversary. So I, I have a date that I started, um, but my family, it was this slow reintroduction of new, sh- new foods and the slow phasing out of old foods. And we took, first we went gluten-free and then we went grain-free and then we went dairy-free and all the while we were trying to eat more vegetables. Like it was, it was slow and methodical. And I, it, there's nothing wrong with taking this in baby steps. You just need to figure out for yourself what's the most sustainable way to make change. So some people do better with, I'm just going to jump in and muscle through the transition and just get it done. And some people do better with, I'm going to do this step and then this step and then this step. 
Um, so know yourself. Know what's going to work better for you and make sure that if you do baby steps that you keep that motivation to keep going, right, that you keep, like, knowing that you got to – what you're working towards. So you're still making steps. Even if you're weeks in between, you know, one step and the next, make sure that you are still progressing down that path. And then if you're a cold turkey kind of person, like remember that there can be, depending on what you were eating before, there can be a really intense physiological adaptation period. If you were eating a lot of carbohydrates before and you're, you've cut down your carbohydrate uh, consumption dramatically, uh, you might feel really terrible for three or four weeks. Um, while your body adapts and being hydrated and getting lots of sleep can speed that up. Um, but know that depending on where you go, um, you need to then again, be sort of dedicated and committed to, to getting through that transition period um, to get to the point where you're like, aha, now I see the difference. And that's why 30 day challenges are so, are so popular, but they're not for everybody. Some people do much, much better with baby steps and there's nothing wrong with that. The most important thing is to, you know, be making progress towards better choices to support your long-term health. Well, there you go, Tiff. So that might be the reason why when you <laughs> cut it out, uh, it, you don't feel good, you know. Maybe you need to wait it out a little while longer, which is probably really hard, I know. But, um, you know, you're the first well, to say that your face puffs up when you eat gluten and stuff. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, right? It should be motivation well, not, enough. Not every not every gluten that's that's been part oh, of the part true. that's been yeah so and you know when you have epstein bar and sulfur issues and things like that and you're trying to manage you know arginine consumption and sulfur consumption and then you have the kidneys and the food you know food or um I've been a food diabetic. controlled diabetic so then I worry mm-hmm. about the protein carbohydrate ratio and it seems daunting to me I I just can't even tell you but I know that it's a, I'm at a certain point where I don't have a choice anymore. So let me ask you one more question. AIP yes. and regular paleo, who needs which? In so, other words, do you tell people, certain people with certain conditions, you're like, listen, you need to, you need to start at the AIP point. Because um, I eat a ton of eggs. They've been my protein source for a long time, and then when you do your genetics and you understand why sulfur foods don't make you feel well and all these different things, I'm like, oh, my God. Okay, take a breath. Someone, please. So if you are coming from not gluten-free and you're looking at paleo and you're looking at the autoimmune protocol, the autoimmune protocol is going to seem extremely intimidating. It is designed to be um, – it's, it's, paleo could be thought of as looking at what's in a food that's a you know, nutrient, right, that's going to support our health versus looking at what's in a food that might undermine our health, putting it on a scale and saying, I'm going to eat the foods that have lots of good stuff for my body and not very much bad stuff. The autoimmune protocol is a little bit stricter about the gray areas. So in regular paleo, you might say, well, this is lots of good stuff, but maybe a little bad stuff. It's fine. I'm going to eat it. Uh, with AIP, you're going to go, well, this has a fair amount of bad stuff. I'm not going to eat it. So it's just a, uh, you know, that cutoff in terms of, you know, the gray area foods is a little bit stricter because our bodies tend to be more sensitive. But I think for, for people coming from a, um, a diet that is still including grains, that is still including dairy, um, 
jumping into the autoimmune protocol, unless you're very sick, right? If you are, um, if you, if you are extremely sick, functional. Yeah. So if you're extremely sick, that's a, that's a different, (laughs) there's a different motivation for that, right? There's a different, like you want to get the most therapeutic value out of diet and lifestyle changes as quickly as possible. If you are completely functional, um, let's do the, the, the low-hanging fruit first, right? You're going to get the biggest bang for your buck with two things. One is, is cutting out gluten and probably dairy, right, and soy. I would say those are sort of the three things that are, are the most inflammatory um, foods that are in even like a, what sort of old-fashioned build as, as healthy. I'm using air quotes, which you totally can't see, but those, those are really common foods. <laughs> we can picture it. People, we can picture it. Yeah, there you go that people think are healthy but really aren't. Um, but then the, the tandem focus on nutrient density, so eating more vegetables, um, trying to incorporate some organ meat, eating more seafood, right, Those uh, changing the fats that you're cooking with to, to be cooking with healthy fats. Those things are the things that are going to get you the farthest, and you can see where that gets you before you decide, am I going to cut out eggs? Am I going to cut out tomatoes? Like how, how am I going to look at some of these other foods that are part of a standard paleo diet, not part of the autoimmune protocol, because they can still be inflammatory, um, especially in people who are more susceptible. So I would say, like, focus on this, goes back to baby steps, but focus on the low-hanging fruit. And I think that with your collection of issues, I'm going to have to send you a copy (laughs) of my new book, um, because my new book really breaks down, right? It has, you know, how do you modify paleo for diabetes and how do you modify paleo for kidney disease and what are the important concepts here for, for these different conditions? Um, well, and I think and that's so part they, of been what's so difficult for me to do it is because I've been food controlled since 19. So what I've been doing has been working, but I think because there's not a whole lot of diversity of foods for me, does that make sense? I do what mm-hmm. works. It's worked as far as diabetes was concerned, you know, to be food controlled for that amount of time you know, but it hasn't worked in other health areas. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, so now it it's does. like, okay, so I have to sort of reinvent the wheel, <laughs> you know, well, and I have to bring know, my family along with it because sh- I see my four children. It's a shift. And I love the fact that yeah. you said, you know, I'm thinking in my head as you're talking, I'm like, okay, so I can do, you know, make, just make little changes rather than just, you know, cold turkey it because I do also have five people. And I know that, you know, my husband has horrible sleep apnea. So when I heard you talking about that, I'm like, you know, he is going to do nothing but benefit from all of this. But it's a matter yep. of being able to do it in a manner that my that, you know, a protocol is only as good as compliance. Yes. So yes. I have I, to, to I, do it in a way that my family will also comply. Does it make sense? Uh, well, no, absolutely. I mean, that for me was so part of it. The trick there is um, the sort of discovery aspect of discovering new favorite foods, especially those meals that everybody loves in the house, but that only really took you like five minutes of hands-on time and 30 minutes from fridge to plate, right? And there are meals like that in, in that, you know, our paleo, like that, that does exist. So part of it is that discovery aspect, and then part of it is the adaptation aspect. And it's a lot to ask kids to uh, adapt their palates, like, oh, yeah, no, so we used to, we used to eat pasta, but now it's, it's uh, zoodles. Zucchini noodles, right? Uh, go, you know. And well, and every child party, you know, baseball parties and dance get-togethers, you know, you have a whole plethora of uh, sugar and pizza 
And you know what I mean? And so my kids, you know, we don't do soda. We don't really do candy. They, may, they make swaps for that. That's super easy for them, you know, because it's a very easy association of I don't feel well. But then you pull yeah. the pot, you know, the pizza and all that. I'm, I know I'm going to get these looks of, and I know it's a matter of eventually they'll see it. You know, I feel great here and, you know, not so good there. Like, you know, my kids very much have that association down with sugar because that's been, you know, something they were raised with. You know, being let that, that's you, always let, been. Let me give you the example of my husband, because my husband does does not have symptoms when he eats gluten, or at least he didn't. Um, he <laughs> ended up being gluten free because he always packed his lunch, and I didn't buy anything with gluten in it, right, and right. he didn't have an opportunity for you know there was no catered work, business meetings at his work for a period of time, and he supported it because he could see the difference it's making in my health and the kids' health. And I made good food, so he didn't mind eating whatever I was making. And he just kind of accidentally became gluten-free in all this. He wasn't committed to it, but it was something that just kind of happened because I was the one doing all the shopping and cooking. And six months went by, and he was actually gluten-free. And then he went out for a meal with his um, colleagues at work, and ended up having, you know, just ordered whatever he wanted because he wasn't, he hadn't bought in to um, being gluten-free. And he, you know, like it wasn't like what happens to me when I eat gluten. I'm wrecked for weeks. But he felt really rotten for about four hours. He just felt just gross and kind of nauseous. And like in the grand scheme of reactions, super mild. I don't know if you would call that gluten sensitivity, but you know, his, his body had detoxified from it. And he, when, he, when it was reintroduced to his system, he could tell he didn't feel good. And that was when he started going, okay, now I'm uh-huh. gluten-free all the time. Right, 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 and, right. and so part of it is, you know, eating better foods at home and not worrying about what happens outside of the home for, for starters. And then all of the same strategies that you're using to replace soda and candy can apply to pizza. You can make delicious paleo pizza, or maybe it's just gluten-free pizza, right? So, like, let's, let's have our parties. I think one of the, the major wonderful strategies with, with making paleo something that's sustainable is going through this journey uh, long enough to really understand our bodies and understand what makes us the healthiest, what is the situation, food and lifestyle, where our bodies thrive, and then what can we tolerate, what what are the where's our wiggle room? Are uh, is it okay? Some people in the paleo community do have pizza once a month, right? Like some people can do that. Other people don't touch gluten, but they'll have corn or um, you know Mexican food with lots of beans, right? They'll have some other kind of treat food, and they feel fine as long as it's not part of their daily diet, right? So it's an okay treat. Um, and lots of people within paleo eat uh, rice on a regular basis. Um, so like there's, there's these foods that wouldn't classically be considered paleo, but people figure out that it's something that works for them. So you, you find how to make it work, how, what do I tolerate? What is optimal? And then you live your life in between those two lines. And And I love you said what you enjoy. Walk that line. Well, yeah. And I think it's really important to figure out how to make it sustainable and how to make it something that you can stick to for the rest of your life. Okay. I have a quick question for you. Paleo recipe. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Oh. Okay. Two questions. Um, okay. My question. You want me to answer the rest my, first? Okay. No, no. Okay. My question <laughs> is, what um, what are the paleo mom's favorite healthy fats to cook with? 
Um, I really like cooking with a, um, a really high-quality olive oil. Um, so I specifically look for very, very fresh uh, cold-pressed olive oil that has a really, really high polyphenol content. So that's really important for olive oil being a safe cooking fat, for it to have a really high polyphenol content because that protects the fats during cooking. Um, but it's like right back to, you know, olive oil is a super versatile, delicious fat. Um, I cook a fair amount with lard that I, um, it's always from pasture-raised pork. Um, sometimes I render it myself, sometimes I buy it already rendered, um, and coconut oil. So I would say those are sort of my three most common. I do a little bit with, with ghee. Um, I can't do, I can't do grass-fed butter, but I can do a grass-fed ghee. Um, and I do a little bit with like avocado oil. Um, I have some tallow in my house. I, you know, like I've got a few other things that I use for specific purposes. But I would say that the most common cooking fats for me are coconut oil, uh, a high quality olive oil, and uh, lard from pasture-raised pigs. Huh. Okay. All right. Favorite paleo recipe? Um. Oh. Gosh, I love food, so that's a really hard question to answer. <laughs> um, uh, How about so, favorite family paleo recipe? Something you know, your whole family's ten, like, oh, mommy, you're going to make this. Yeah, so my 10-year-old's favorite food is what we call liver burgers. And this is, I mean, she asks for it for breakfast. Like I, when I make them, I have to make seven or eight pounds at a time oh, so wow. I can fill my freezer because this is her favorite breakfast. And what I do is I take um, – usually like a more mild liver. So like chicken liver, uh, bison liver, lamb liver, these tend to be more mild flavored compared to like beef liver, which has a much stronger flavor. Uh, and I take a pound of it and I mix it. So I, um, you can grate it with a box grater frozen and it turns into the texture of ground meat. And I mix it uh, with ground beef and sometimes a little bit of ground pork, um, depending on how lean my ground beef is. And I make hamburger patties. And I, I usually bake them because that's super easy. I can just put it on two, two baking sheets and bake them for 20 minutes at 400 degrees. Um, but if I have time to grill them on the barbecue, I'll do that too. Um, and uh, the, it's enough liver that uh, a mild liver almost acts like a flavor enhancer, but you can't really taste it. So I typically dilute you know, one pound of liver to at least three pounds of other meat, sometimes four. And that's, we're well adapted to that. If, if people are thinking about trying it and you don't, you know, you don't like liver, try like one pound of liver to five or six pounds of other meats. So try diluting it even more. But there's something about that meal. I think the way, reason my, why everyone in my family loves it, I think there's, um, we know that uh, associating food with feeling physically well actually impacts our um, taste perception so we are we will prefer to eat foods that we associate some kind of physical good feeling with and I think that's why this has become such a favorite food uh in my house like I I have to have them in the in the freezer at pre-made at all times so as I watch that container go down that's when I know I have to make another batch and I probably make it twice a month um now is that your 50 50 50 burger that's the 50-50-50 burger on the, on the website. Um, Recipe's on can, the website. You can, I mean, you know, that, that particular version of this recipe is one pound of ground liver, one pound of ground beef, one pound of ground bacon. Um, but you can absolutely add more beef to that. You can swap out the bacon for ground pork. Like, you can play with that, but just play with that idea of, um, you know, 
mixing uh, liver, ground liver in with other ground meat. Um, and I think the reason why everyone loves it in my family, beyond the fact that, you know, we all think it's tasty, but I think we all associate feeling good with that right. meal. Um, and we sometimes have it with uh, guacamole. I sometimes let my kids have it with gluten-free buns. Like that's not paleo at all, but that's like a really fun treat for them. Um, sometimes we have it, what we call, this is like a term from when I was a kid, we used to call uh, hamburger patties without the bun poor man steak. Um, so yeah. sometimes we'll have what we call <laughs> poor man steak. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure how politically correct that term is anymore, but that, that dates back to when I was, when I was a kid. Um, so sometimes we'll have it, you know, just, you know, roast sweet potatoes and steamed vegetables or something on the side and kind of have it that way. Um, but it is an absolutely um, staple. Like it's, it's an absolute staple in my household. All right. Love Sounds that. Good. Um, I see. Well, we could talk to you all day, and we're coming to visit. <laughs> uh, we are. We're going to come right. visit. We're going to walk. We're going to walk through your garden. We're going to check out your uh, liver beef patties in the fridge, and we're going to, you know, <laughs> hang out on the patio. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> this has been fabulous. I mean, you know, I just we've we've been so excited to talk to you. So thank you so very much, Sarah. We are um, honored to have you on the show. Of course, we're going to share, you know, um, where everybody can find you. But we also like to ask the guests you know, the most exciting things that are kind of coming up. And I know that you're writing, are you, are you done with the book, Paleo Principles? Uh, we're, we're, we're copy editing. So it, we go to print in, I think, four weeks. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's nearly the end. Um, and it's actually, the mo- for me, the most fun part because I've been working on this book for over a year. And now I'm finally getting to see, you know, the way it's going to look at, you know, after the designers have, have put all of my um, – you know, graphic design wish list together and then put it all together. So it's, and it's so pretty. I'm super excited. Uh, so yeah, my new book is called Paleo Principles. It's going to be a beast. I don't know what the final page count is going to be, but something like 650 pages. Um, yeah, I, I keep telling people they'll make them healthy just by carrying it around. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I love that. But how do you get healthy? Um, well, I carried Sarah's book around. It's for a exactly. While. I mean, I, I've been joking <laughs> that we need to create little like baby Bjorn carriers just for this book. Um, but uh, it's it's all of the science behind paleo, and it includes a tremendous amount of of information for people with autoimmune disease. I mean, my my first book, The Paleo Approach, is specifically how to modify paleo for people with autoimmune disease, but there's a ton of information in paleo principles as well, including some information um, that is not in the paleo approach, although there's plenty of stuff in the paleo approach that's not coming in paleo principles either. Um, but it, it really is the entire scientific foundation for every aspect of the paleo diet and the paleo lifestyle, including um, being you know, really frank discussions about what aspects of paleo are uh, not as supported by science. So, you know, where the science is not cut and dry and uh, certain foods have more uh, pros and cons. And that, that includes foods that are traditionally not considered paleo that are probably good choices for a lot of people. And it includes foods that have traditionally been considered paleo that maybe aren't the best choices for everybody. Um, and then it has 230-some-odd recipes in it. So it's, you know, 500 pages of science and then an entire cookbook at the end with uh, 20 meal plans, including meal plans for different health goals. So meal plans for reducing cardiovascular disease risk factors, meal plans for managing diabetes um, in a, a 
18 more. Um, and so it's really designed to be a one-stop shop. Um, so it really has all of the information and all of the practical tools that you need to be successful regaining your health with Paleo Principles. Wow. Oh, that is so exciting. Tiffany, I would love to have a copy. Thank you so much. For, for offering, I know I know Tiffany wants it, but I want one too. You can't just send oh, it to I Tiffany. Am, I am certain that two copies could be put in the mail. That is absolutely <laughs> absolutely a thing that can happen. Um, okay, well, um, we're fans and we love you. And I have sent you a friend request on Facebook. I know you probably get a, a jillion, but I have sent one. <laughs> for it. And so um, you need to look for it. And we have just enjoyed this. Um, we're coming to visit. We'll let you know beforehand, but we're coming to visit. <laughs> that sounds great. Thank you so much for taking the time. I, I, I love the fact that, that you give me room to just, you know, I, it's just, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Happy. A little wiggle room for on your baby step journey to, <laughs> wiggle uh, room, to paleo. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wiggle room. <laughs> Thanks, Sarah. Have a great, great day. Thank you. You as well. Okay. <laughs> bye. Bye. Oh my gosh. You know, she is so incredibly intelligent. You know, I love How the way smart she went and fun from, was that. I mean, I just got I know, fun. right? <laughs> totally. <laughs> We could have talked to her on multiple subjects. It's like, ah, wait a minute. We could go down that rabbit hole. Wait, wait, wait. We could go there. I know. I know. That was great. I'm so happy. What a great, great show. That just makes me smile. And her book sounds amazing. So be on the lookout for that. Of course, we'll promote it and do all of that stuff. But, um, wow. And the recipes are great. I mean, she's got got quite a few resources um, on her site. And, uh, of course, you can find... All things Sarah Ballantyne at thepaleomom.com. There's recipes there. I'm looking through some. Good science. Yes. I mean, there's just all kinds of amazing resources. Honestly, As I'm, always, I, I'm, <laughs> sorry. I was just going to end. I'm ready to go. I'm just a great show. As always, really thank you to our listeners. And if you get a free moment and you enjoy our show, we'd love a little review on iTunes. So uh, try to do that. Absolutely. Oh, and, and and if you've missed any of our Red Nation Radio podcasts, you can easily download and listen to them at your leisure for walking or jogging or in the car on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play. We're pretty much everywhere. Absolutely. And uh, be sure to check out Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. Just very clean, preservative-free skincare, some uh, aromatherapy inhalers that are very helpful um, for brain fog, fatigue. And we're going to get the brain chill up there at some point. People are yes, loving it. are. If you're yes. in the Joshua Tree area, you're more than happy to come out and test some, test some things with the Joshua Tree Farmer's Market. Yeah, look for Tiffany, Grateful Garden. Make sure to follow Thyroid Nation at thyroidnation.com, on Facebook, on all the social media platforms, and check out the Hoshies and Grace Facebook support group. We have Sarah Valentine's picture in there, all the upcoming guests, and lots of information. Check that out. Yep, and she is as lovely as she is intelligent. Of course, Dana mm-hmm. and I, most importantly, uh, I know it sounds we repeat it every time, but want to remind you that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation. It's not a one and you're done do this and you're finished. It's a continual 
you know, check in with your body and see how everything is going. And, and when you're not well, you need to make some alterations. Your body tells you everything. Make sure that you are willing to listen and be mindful. That's pretty smart. It's pretty smart. Just uh, let it talk to you and listen to it. This is Danny, your thyroid nation. Bring Gatika. And Tiffany Milanich. Bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united we heal. Thanks, guys. Next week, Wendy Myers. Oh, cool. Okay. See you next week. <laughs>